You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. You've been here for a few years. You know, on the first Sunday of every month, we do communion, and you probably saw uh, Robert Chance just faithfully trucking in that cart week after week, uh, getting ready. And as uh, many of you know, Robert went to be with the Lord um, a few weeks ago after a long battle with illness. And so I just wanted to start in prayer for him, uh, grieving his loss, but also rejoicing that his pain is gone and that he has graduated from the land of the dying to the land of the living and that while we miss him, he doesn't miss us because he's with the Savior. And that's something to celebrate as well. So would you pray now as we think of him and uh, go to his word? God, we thank you for this servant, Lord. And um, I'm just so encouraged by his faithfulness through the finish line, God. And we are going to miss him and his faithful service. Thank you for that example, for joy in suffering over years, Lord. And thank you that his pain is no more. We pray, Lord, that we would learn from that to finish well and to rejoice in hope even in suffering, uh, God, because you will make good on your promise and will make all things new. Thank you that he is with you now. Thank you for your word, Lord, that makes us new and instructs us. Would you give us ears, Lord? We need ears from you to hear this in such a way that we believe it and obey it. Spirit, I can't make that happen. Only you can. So God, quiet our hearts and our minds and focus us, Jesus, right now on exactly what you want to teach us. Pray it in your name. Amen. I've been on a quote kick lately. I just like starting sermons with quotes. So here's another one that I was thinking about this week. To thine own self be true. You heard someone say that? To thine own self be true. It's a famous line from Hamlet. It's 400 years old. And yet you could argue that that is the creed of the modern Western world. To thine own self be true. In context, the phrase means something like act with integrity. That's what the character Polonius was talking about, and that's ironic because Polonius had no integrity, if you read the play. But today when people say this, they, they don't mean just integrity. They're talking about something like authenticity. They're saying, be true to yourself. Th- that's the creed of the modern world, and it means something like this. Um, you, you are an individual. And you must create your own values, your own standards. You must find your own happiness. You must discover your own truth. You must discover and embrace your own identity, and then you will live authentically. Your authentic self. Be true to yourself. Shakespeare was talking about integrity. We're talking about authenticity which in some sense is the greatest value in the world. That if I can be authentic to my true self, that's the best thing in the universe. I'm all I need. I'm enough. I just need to find my own truth because I'm the captain of my soul. Have you heard people talk like that? Uh, Christian Smith is a sociologist, and he interviews thousands of young adults every year, uh, or has for the last decade, and he studies the spiritual and religious lives of young adults, kind of how they feel And um, I think this is the modern version of be true to yourself. Here's one respondent to his survey. 
Morality is how I feel. You could feel what's right or wrong in your heart as well as your mind. Most of the time I've always felt, I feel it in my heart, and it makes it easier for me to morally decide what's right and wrong because if I feel about doing something, I'm going to feel it in my heart, and if it feels good, that I'm going to do it. Not quite as pithy as Shakespeare, but that respondent, he is giving voice to something that's like a, it's the air we breathe in this culture. You might have heard the phrase, might makes right. I think today we could call that feel makes real. Right? Whatever I feel most and strongly that just lines up with my intuitions, that's actually reality. Whatever just resonates with who I am most deeply. Now, that sounds like a modern idea, does it? Doesn't it? It's not. In fact, as we'll see today in our study of Isaiah, it's a very old idea. It's a mood that the world lives in, that humans have always lived in, and as disciples of Jesus Christ, as students of him, as his followers, it's something we always have to be on guard against, that am I actually listening to Jesus in my life, or am I just listening to myself? We're currently in a a series on the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Jesus took his cues from Isaiah. He understood himself and his mission in light of what the prophet Isaiah says. And so if we want to understand Jesus, if we want to understand his mission, if we want to understand our mission as his followers, we have to start with Isaiah. And more specifically, we have to start with this mysterious character called the servant. He shows up in the latter half of the book, and the servant is God's man to accomplish God's mission. Isaiah writes four songs about the servant. We've looked at the first two. Today, we look at servant song number three, which is in chapter 50. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. And let's begin at the end of this servant song. Just like in chapter 49, the servant starts speaking in the first person. Here's what the servant says. Here's his message. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. What's the servant saying? He's saying, I'm God's teacher. I'm the teacher from God, God's authorized messenger. And we've seen that already, haven't we? Isaiah 42 says that the coastlands wait for the law of the servant. Chapter 49, the servant says, listen up world to me. So the servant says the same thing here, but he goes even further. Here, he defines trusting God as listening to who? Him. Notice that parallel in verse 10. Those who fear God are those who do what? Obey the voice of the servant. Fearing God is the Old Testament way of talking about trusting God. It's revering God. It's taking God more seriously than you take anything or anyone else. And so who are the people who trust God? Ultimately, the ones who obey the voice of God of the servant. What's the opposite of trusting God? Well, that's verse 11, and this is interesting. Look at how the servant describes those who reject him. He says, they kindle their own fire and walk by its light. What does that mean? 
the servant is talking about people who create their own light to live by, who, who light a fire for themselves from their own resources and just say, I'm going to go this way. That light is in me. In today's language, we'd call that following your inner light. That's a strikingly modern image, isn't it? And the servant warns here that it does not go well for people who follow their own light. Because in following their own light, they reject the servant, and actually by starting that light, what do they do? They light a fire. And that fire burns up the things around them and burns their world down. And then they reap the torment of their self-constructed view of the world. They eat the fruit of their own ways. That's true in this life, the servant says. It's true in the life to come. That following your own light is a great way to set a fire. It burns the world down. Proverbs 16 would say it this way. There's a way that seems right to us. Seems good. But its end is what? Death. It's death. So the servant, by his own testimony, says there's two choices. Listen to me or trust yourself. And that's stark, isn't it? Because the message the world constantly tells us is what? Follow your heart. Look deep inside. Find that inner light. You'll know what to do. Go with your gut. That is the default setting of the culture. But what I want you to see, it's always been the default setting of the fallen human heart. This isn't new. I'm just going to go with what I want to do. I think that's best. And that is my tendency always apart from Jesus. And so the question I want us to consider today is if we say we're followers of Jesus, how do I know at any given moment that I'm following Jesus and I'm not following Jeff? How do I know that I'm actually responding to him and not just to what I think is best in any given situation? You ever wonder about that? Well, let's talk more about that today. Here's what I love about Jesus, who is the servant here, if you were wondering. Jesus doesn't just tell us to listen to him. He shows us how to listen to him. One thing that's beautiful about Jesus is that anything that he mandates us to do, he models how to do it. Right? He, he doesn't just lead us and say, do it. He says, here is the example of how to follow. In fact, in John 15, he says to his disciples, the way I obey my Father's commandments, that's your model for how you should obey me. And that's the servant here. What we learn about the servant is he's not just the perfect teacher. He's the perfect student. He doesn't just tell us, listen to me. He says, here's how you do it. Here's what a life looks like that follows God. So so what does it look like to actually follow Jesus? Jesus shows us here. He is the teachable Servant, he's devoted to listening, he's committed to obeying, he's confident of prevailing. That gives us the plumb line to know if we're following Jesus. Who am I listening to? Am I willing to obey even when it's uncomfortable? And then do I have the confidence of knowing I am in the will of God? That's what Jesus models here. So let's look at these. First thing he models, the servant is teachable. Whose viewpoint are you most interested in hearing in life? Is it God's? Or is it your own? I heard someone say it this way this week. Uh, You know why we have ears on the outside of our head and not the inside? Because we were created to listen to someone else and not our own thoughts. 
That's what listening is for, is ultimately to hear God, because his opinions, his concerns, his standards are more important than our own thoughts. So the first way to know that you're really trusting God and not living by your own life is whose voice is dominant in my life? Whose voice am I listening to? The servant gets that. Listen to what he says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The servant knows how to teach. Isn't that comforting? Jesus knows how to teach us in order to sustain us. That's what Jesus is saying here. I can give you words that will sustain you when you are tired. I want to hear that guy talk. That's what he offers. Why does he know that? Because he knows how to listen. He's the perfect student. In fact, he models exactly what God's people were supposed to be doing all the time. One of the interesting features of the servant, and we saw this last week, is that God gives the servant a name, and do you remember what his name is in Isaiah? Remember what the name? I love this moment. <laughs> this is the best moment. Israel, yeah. He names his servant Israel. Why would he name his servant that? Because the servant will do what Israel was supposed to do, but what the nation of Israel had repeatedly failed to do. Israel was called to be God's light to the nations, the agent through whom God redeemed the world. God was going to use the nation to bless every nation, but here was the catch. What was the one thing Israel had to do? Listen to God. Here's my law. Follow it. If you do it, I will use you. And Israel said, nope. No thanks. They persistently refused, but the servant, the new Israel, will do what the nation of Israel would not do. Look at the contrasts between the servant and the nation in this passage. Alec Matir notes this in his commentary. The servant and the nation are constantly contrasted in these chapters. The nation refuses to heed God's call. Who's the servant? He's the perfect listener. The nation is unconvinced of God's love and God's power. The servant believes the Lord is his help, even in times of suffering. The nation suffers because they're disobedient. As we'll see, the servant suffers because he's obedient. The, the nation is guilty before God. As we'll see this morning, the servant says, no one can bring an accusation against me. You see the difference? The servant is always doing what the nation was supposed to be doing but wouldn't, and now there's this growing chasm between the servant and the nation. This one person, the servant, will do what the nation was supposed to be doing, and what is the servant supposed to be doing? Listening. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear. What is the servant's first concern every day? Hearing from God early. Let's keep first things first. I love the way Matir says it in his commentary. He says, this is not some special provision. He says, this is the standard curriculum for what a disciple does. You hear from God day by day. He awakens your ear. Now, fast forward to Jesus, who is the servant. What does he model for us? You know, there's a feature of Jesus' ministry that's often overlooked, but once you see it, you'll see it everywhere. What is Jesus constantly doing leaving, <laughs> to get away, 
from people and listen to God. Luke 15 says Jesus would withdraw, the NASB says would withdraw often to desolate places where people couldn't get to him, even though they still would try, get to, and he would pray. This week, I could count over 20 times in the Gospels where Jesus tries to get away and be with God. That is the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. Why? Because Jesus isn't just fully God, he's fully human. And in his humanity, he is fully dependent on the Father for everything. He says, I can do nothing of my own initiative, but only what the Father gives me to do. So I've got to go to God all the time and learn what does he want me to do. And Jesus had to learn. In his humanity, Jesus was not omniscient. He had to grow in his understanding of the scriptures. He had to learn how to obey. God didn't just zap him from heaven with spiritual insight and knowledge. He wouldn't be our example then, right? No, he had to study. He had to pray. Hebrews 5 says he matured through suffering. He didn't go from sinful to sinless. He went from innocent to mature. He had to pass tests. He had to grow through testing and learn. Now, here's the point. If Jesus, the Son of God, had to learn every day from the Father, what do you think we need to do? (laughs) How much more should we be most concerned about what God says, and how do I know that I'm not just following Jeff, but actually following Jesus? How do I know that I'm following the light of the world and not my inner light? Here's the question. Whose voice are you most concerned about listening to? When you wake up, whose voice are you most concerned about listening to? Is it your own thoughts and anxieties to just flood your day immediately? Or do you you shove that back and say, no, there's a different voice I need to hear? Here's a reason we get frustrated reading the Bible. You ever been frustrated reading the Bible? Because maybe you've actually, like, we'll nag you every week to read your Bible in the morning, and maybe one time you did it, right? Like, I'm going to do this and see how it goes. And, And then you're like, oh, man, this is weird and challenging and hard. Do you know why you feel that? Here's one reason. One reason is it is challenging. It takes discipline. It takes work. But another reason that sometimes we're disappointed with the Bible is because our motivator is wrong. I go to the Bible assuming this is going to say something for me today, right? I'm looking for what's immediately applicable. And then I open up the Bible and go, huh? What does this have to do with my life? Here's why you feel that way. Here's one reason I don't think it's relevant. Because I have already determined what's relevant in life. I've already determined, here are the most important things in my life. Here are the most pressing issues of the day. And so what I need God to do is get on board with my agenda And tell me how to think about the things I care about. And then God just blows that up when you read the Bible because you realize he didn't give you the Bible to help you live your path of relevance. He gave you the Bible to show you what he thinks is relevant. You come to the Bible to actually get your perspective retrained to see life the way God sees it. And so you go, oh, maybe the things I care about aren't the things God cares most about. And maybe the things I'm most concerned about aren't the things God's most concerned about. And maybe God has this whole other set of concerns that I wasn't even thinking about today. That's why you go to the Bible. Because ultimately, it's not about listening to my voice. It's about listening to who? God. And so the Bible's constantly going to be chipping away at your own perspective on life and challenging what you think is relevant. Does that make sense? 
That's how you know you're a disciple. Oh man, I gotta retrain my perspective. So how do you make hearing from God a habit? Two things that Jesus did. First, Jesus gave God his best time. He gave his best time to the Father to hear from him. What time in the day are you most focused, most interrupted, most receptive? Give that time to God. The servant said morning by morning, that was his habit. Now, I'm gonna make an argument here, and you can disagree with me. If at all possible, the only time I have found in my life when I can consistently meet with God in an uninterrupted way is when Jesus did. Morning by morning. If you can, get up as early as you can tolerate to meet with God. I love sleep, by the way. I don't think I'm a morning person. I need sleep, but I will push for this early. Now, it's not possible in every season of life. Don't beat yourself up. If you're working a swing shift, go, I can't obey Jesus because I sleep during the morning. Like, you can find another time. But if you can, do it. There's times in life it's hard. If you have young kids, this is hard, okay? Don't beat yourself up if you miss. But, but here's why I try to do it early. First, it's a biblical pattern. I can't find any command in the morning that says, thou shalt get up at six and have a quiet time. And that's what thou shalt call it, the quiet time with God. Now, I can't find that verse. Jesus doesn't tell us that, but what does he show us? That's his pattern. And, and it just sort of makes sense, right? Seek God's kingdom first by seeking him first with the day. Now, commune with God throughout the day. Keep talking to God. But you know this, how you start your day sets the tone, right? However you start your day, that's gonna set the tone. So that's one reason. It's just it's a biblical pattern. There's also a, pr a very practical reason to start early with God. <laughs> what part of your day for most of us is least competed for? <laughs> the earlier the better, right? If you, have, if you have little kids, every part of your day is competed for, okay? So that's, <laughs> that, that's just the truth. But otherwise, that's the one time of day where people don't want you. The evenings, your friends wants you, day, your boss wants you, your family wants you, everything. But this is the one time maybe where, where you can get uninterrupted time because the only people who want your time really early in the morning are pastors, are people who are really intense, are people who are weird, okay? Those are the only three, and sometimes those all go together, all right? But, uh, but, but here's the point. We're trying to build a rhythm of hearing from God and you need to make that rhythm as predictable as you can. So what is that time for you? It's gotta be predictable. It's got to be the time least likely to be uninterrupted. Now, if you have another time of the day where you're consistently meeting with God, praise God, you're meeting with him. But I would just say, if you're not doing it, Jesus' pattern is the one to follow, okay? When can I give him my best time? Here's the second thing. How do I create space in my life so Jesus can get my attention? Do you notice what the servant says? He awakens my ear. In other words, Jesus lives in communion with God in such a way that God can get his attention and direct him. For us as disciples of Jesus, we bury the word in our heart, and then what does the Spirit do? He brings that word to remembrance when we need it throughout our day. And here's what I've found. If I don't create space to hear from God, um, I'm not gonna hear from him. During the day, those scriptures aren't gonna come to mind. That, that sense of what do I need to do in this situation? So I have to create some kind of space in my life where I can just be attentive to a scripture he wants to bring to mind, a thing he wants to teach me. 
And you know that this takes discipline. I like the way C.S. Lewis said it, that the moment you awake, all your wishes and hopes for the day come rushing at you like wild animals. Right? We don't need to seek out the other voices in our life. They're right here. Whose voice do we need to seek? God's, that's the hardest one to hear. And so for me, what I've been trying to do, and I really learned this over sabbatical, is just create margin to actually hear what God might wanna be teaching me. So when I'm having my quiet time, one thing it means is is for me, maybe you can do it on your phone. I can't do it on my phone because my phone isn't a phone. No one's phone is a phone now. It's not a phone. It's it's an everything device, okay? It's an everything device. And so I don't like bringing my everything device to my time with Jesus, right? Because if I'm talking to you and I'm like, hold on. Oh man, hold on, hold on. You enjoy that, don't you? That's just great to talk to someone who's doing that. I don't want to talk to God that way where I'm constantly getting pulled. And so what's great about this is it's one thing. It's one thing. So I have that out. I know that's what I'm focused on. If I'm going to journal, I'm trying not to do it on a digital, I try to write it out, even though it's longer. Now, maybe you can do that great. I can't, okay? I like dopamine too much. So um, I need physical things. The other thing that helps me is determining what am I going to use my phone for in life, period. You realize your phone is a tool. It is not your source of joy and entertainment, right? And so you just have to determine. It can be used for all sorts of things, but it shouldn't be used for everything. It has to have a place in your life. So for me, if I have the internet on my phone or social media on my phone or even my work email on my phone, guess what? I'm always checking all the time. And so for me, I just don't have those things on there. So whatever it is for you, what, what kind of limits are you going to place on this thing so it plays a part in your life and not everything in your life, right? Does that make sense? Here's why. There are times during the day when it's silent and I don't always need to fill that silence. This thing is the silent killer, <laughs> right? It's the silence killer. So I got to put that thing away. The other thing I found useful is just When can I be silent during the day to be prayerful, to be meditative? For me, I've learned, man, it's driving. If I'm driving, if I'm alone in the car, I drive better. (laughs) If I'm not listening to everything, I benefit all of you. And I have more space to just hear, okay, God, what do you want to say to me? What did I read this morning? Lord, what are you teaching me? Does that make sense? This is a skill that you need to build. Or else you're just going to be swimming in your own thoughts all the time and not attentive, hearing God. So how do I know if I'm following, trusting in God or following my own light first? Who am I listening to? Who do I care most about? But that's only step one. Because ultimately, we're not just called to be hearers of the word, right? But doers. Doers of the word. And if you're a doer of the word, here's what it means. As you're listening, God will awaken you to an area where you need to obey. And that's where the rubber meets the road in discipleship, right? Not how much Bible you know, but how much Bible you put into practice. And and here's the thing about obedience. Here's how to know almost all the time that you're actually obeying God and not just following the inner light, you don't want to do it. (laughs) Your your initial reaction is, "Eh, I don't know, God, because obedience is costly. So, So like I just said, I'm quiet in my car, right? I'm quiet in my car. So I've been practicing silence because I want to be more attentive to God and what he has to say to me. And so I'm quiet and I'm on 580 and I'm driving to church and this silver sedan goes flying in front of me and nails a car in the second lane. 
that nails a car in the third lane right in front of me, and they're all spinning around. And I'm like two cars back seeing this all happen. And I'm like, all right, God, you've got my attention. <laughs> and, and then one of the cars, you know, it's a hit and run. He drives off. And then one car pulls over down the road. And then the other car is, is trying to get off. And I'm like the third car back now as it's trying to get to the shoulder. And there's two cars in front of me. And I'm like, oh, no, because this is what I'm thinking about, right? I'm thinking about the parable of the Good Samaritan when this happens, right? And you know the story, right? You know the story. There's a, there's a man beaten on the side of the road. And the first man who you expect to stop, he passes. And the second man stops. But the third, the Good Samaritan, stops. And so this car is spun out on the side of the road. And car one passes. And car two in front of me passes. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm the Good Samaritan car, right? Like, <laughs> oh, jeez, right? And, and, and God is saying, I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Is this person crazy? Like, I don't know. Who are they? They just stop. No one is stopping for them. What do I do? Have you been in that situation where you go, this is going to be really costly? Because I'm a witness, right? This is going to take hours to deal with. There is a cost. What do you do in that moment when God is saying, this is what obedience looks like? What did the servant do? Look at what comes next. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Here's what the text is saying. As the servant is listening to God morning by morning, there's a point at which God tells him something specific. He says, your obedience is going to cost you dearly. And you can't look at this text without fast-forwarding to Jesus. Jesus because it's autobiographical and it's so specific, flawed, publicly humiliated. And now we see why Isaiah is called the fifth gospel, because this is just pointing right ahead to the perfect servant Jesus and his willingness to obey even to the point of death. As we're reading this as Old Testament Jews, this would have been a mystery and it's not unveiled until we get to Christ. And here's the arresting thing to think about. You know, Jesus, as he's studying the scriptures, you've got to think at one point he read Isaiah 50, right? And as he's reading, he sees the fate of the servant and he knew it, but now he knows it in experience. I am going to suffer. And what's amazing about the servant is that he's resolved to do it even though obedience is going to cost him. Verse seven, he goes on to say, I love this phrase, I have set my face like a flint to obey. You ever seen a person give the million yard stare, <laughs> right? Just totally determined, nothing is distracting him. That's the servant. I'm gonna obey. I know this is the will of God, no matter what. And don't you love Jesus in 951, Luke 9, he looks to Jerusalem, Luke says, and set his face toward it. Set his face. That word literally means hardened his face. Set it like flint. Jesus is looking ahead to the trial and the judgment and the flogging and the suffering and the execution. He sees all of it in that million-yard stare and knows because of Isaiah 50 what he's going to do. And what does he do? He marches straight into his death. 
Jesus is the perfect disciple. He knows exactly what it will cost to obey. He is clear and he says yes. That is the plumb line for us. That is where the rubber meets the road in discipleship. How do I know if I am following Jesus and not Jeff? If I am listening to the light of the world and not my inner light? Here's the question to ask. Am I willing to say no to myself in order to say yes to God? It's that simple. The way I know that I'm trusting God and not leaning on my own understanding is that I go, oh, that's what obedience means? See, when you feel that, oh, that's a good thing because now it means that I'm actually following Jesus. Very seldom does God reveal something in his word and I go, that's what I was thinking, God. High five, right? We're on the same page. I'm so glad. No, because then it's not faith. Then it's not, man, if I step out, God, are you gonna meet me there? Are you gonna help me? And so where is that area right now where it just seems too much to say yes to God? Right? I can't spend time with God. I don't have time to lose in my life. If I admit I'm wrong in any way in this conflict, that person will walk all over me. I know there's friction between me and her, but she started it, she needs to fix it. I'm not gonna make the first move. I know there's a problem in that person's life, I'm, I'm not gonna ask though. It's, it's, too, it's too scary. There are areas God calls us and it's going to seem costly. There's always a cost. That's, that's what I'm grappling with as I'm on the side of the road. I'm pulled over, who is this person, right? And so I did pull over and uh, this older woman gets out and she has no idea anyone even hit her. She's like, what just happened? She's totally disoriented. I call highway patrol as I'm talking with her, highway patrol's coming. The other woman, an even older woman comes up to me from the other car and she is in trauma. She's not hurt, but she is just in psychological shock. She's got her husband on the phone. She can't even talk. I talk to her husband, tell her where she is. And you know, in that moment, I realized, and it's like the Spirit said, this is exactly what you're supposed to do today. This is it. And you know, at that moment, there was such freedom because I was just so confident that I was right in the middle of God's will. And then all of a sudden, the cost vanishes. And it was just this sense of, I am here to minister to these women. And I look at this woman and I said, you're in shock. And, and I, you know, this is, you just, you know, when you're listening to God in these situations, you just get impulsive. I'm like, you are in trauma and I need to pray for you. And so I'm gonna do that right now. And she's like, yes. And so I start praying. And, and it was just like the spirit of God was so palpably present in that moment as I'm crying out to God for her. And there's tears coming down her face of relief as I can tell. And it's not about me. It's about, it's just knowing I'm a conduit right now. The Spirit of God is using this in some way to bring relief to this woman when she's scared to death. That's better than checking everything off my box for that day. That's better. That's a better way to live. And I tell you that story because I'm a great guy. That's why I told it. No, that's not why I told the story. I'm telling it because this, because there's always a cost on the front end. What do you get on the back end? You get the presence of God. 
And once you experience it, you'll know, oh, I can't live without that. That's the best thing I could have done today. And then you're confident in what you're doing in life. Look at, look at what the servant says. I know I am going to suffer the worst fate for my obedience, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. When you say yes to God in obedience, do you know what you can be confident about? God is near. That's what the servant was confident about. God is near. And you know what near here means? It doesn't just mean God is with the servant. It means God is for the servant. He's near in the sense of being the defendant of the servant. God is on his side. That's why he's so confident, right? The servant's like, let's hold a trial right now if you think I'm in the wrong. <laughs> let's see what God says. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? John 8 with the Pharisees, he's like, who, who convicts me of sin? Please. Who thinks I'm sinful here? Go ahead. If you think I'm in the wrong, you will have such confidence in your life when you know that you are responding to God in obedience. And the opinions of people will seem so trivial, so small, so transient. Those people get eaten up like a moth, the servant says. Who cares what they think? Because I am fearing God more than people. And when you activate that, you fear people a lot less. That's the promise. You're confident of prevailing in life because you know God is with you. Do you want that every day? Don't you want that? I want that because here's the problem with walking in your own light. Everyone sort of knows it doesn't work because you've all done really stupid things because you wanted to. <laughs> and you all know that. I love the example Tim Keller gives of this. This is a great example. You know, do you remember 18-year-old you, if you're past 18? And do you remember how 18-year-old you thought about 13-year-old you? Like, man, that guy was an idiot. I can't believe 13-year-old me. Oh, my gosh. You know, what's funny, though, is 18-year-old you becomes 30-year-old you at some point. And then 30-year-old you looks back at 18-year-old you and he goes, I can't believe I did that when I was 18. And then, now I'm, I'm narrowing the crowd down here, that someday you're going to be 50-year-old you. <laughs> and you're going to look back at 30-year-old you and go, I can't believe I was so concerned about that at that age. What was I thinking? And now, what's the point? You're always an idiot. That's what Keller says. You're always an idiot. That's the point of the story, right? That, that you can't see where you're going that clearly in life, and then when you get a little more perspective, you go, wow, I really didn't know. And part of the reason you're plagued with uncertainty or self-doubt in life is because you're trying to follow yourself, and you're walking in a circle. And Jesus says, follow the light of the world. And even if you walk in darkness of the world, you'll never really walk in darkness because you have the light of life inside you. That's what Jesus says. And that's what I would invite you into. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, there will come a point in your life where you realize, like, I just don't have the wisdom to figure this out. There's too many variables. There's too many things to know. How freeing to know that we weren't created to find our own way. We were created to know the light of the world. And Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. 
See, this is the, the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus dies to save you, but dies and rises to be with you forever. And so in every moment, through his word and through his spirit, I have the light of the world in me, and I listen to him, not my own light. And when I'm convinced he's calling, I say yes. That is the greatest assurance to know that you're not a sheep leading yourself. You've got a shepherd. And a shepherd who knows exactly where he's going. And if you have not trusted in that shepherd, let me tell you, from walking with him now for over 30 years, he knows how to lead me way better than I know how to lead myself. And so if you want him to lead you, let's pray something like this, and you can bow your heads now to pray with me. You can say, Jesus, I admit that apart from you is darkness. That I've followed my own light and I've walked away from God. I've walked away from you. Thank you, Jesus, that though you are the light of the world, you came into our darkness. You took on our sin, my sin. You died that I might be forgiven. You rose that I might have life with you. So Jesus, I believe it. Come into my life. I don't want to lead myself. Lead me in your everlasting way. In your name, amen.